A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here. It is a late one this Friday, of course, because of Thursday night European action, a 2-0 defeat to PSV. We'll talk about that in a couple of moments' time with my guest, Philippe Beauclair. He's coming along very shortly. Just to give you a, a very quick update, uh, it's breaking now in front of me as I as I record. So the story from yesterday involving Pablo Marie, who uh, is on loan with Monza, was stabbed in the back, in the shoulder yesterday in a, an attack in a supermarket near Milan. One person, very sadly, has died in that attack. He's undergone surgery this morning. It went well. He's expected to be out of action for for a couple of months. And uh, just to send him all the best wishes possible, because this is obviously a, a very traumatic thing to experience on an individual level. The physical scar will take some time to heal, but I'm sure the mental scars will be with him for just as long, if not longer. Of course, there was a quote from one of the Italian newspapers where he basically said, uh, today I was lucky because I saw a person die in front of me. Um, I don't quite know how you get your head around something like that, but he's fortunate because clearly it could have been worse. The person who carried out the attack was capable of doing something as atrocious and horrible as that. He's there with his wife and his son, Pablo Marie, and for them to be there to go through something like that in front of your family with your family there. I mean, it's just the whole thing is horrendous and horrific and deep sympathies are with the uh, family of the person who died. But best wishes to Pablo Marie and Hopefully he can make a, a full recovery uh, in time from uh, this just crazy, crazy incident. All right, let's get on with the show. Arsenal played PSV last night in Eindhoven. They lost 2-0, didn't play very well. So with me to talk about that and more is Philippe Auclair. Good morning, Philippe. Hello to you, Andrew. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. Uh, Arsenal lost for the first time in Europe this season against PSV last night and... I think it's fair to say that we kind of got what we deserved from this game, which was which was absolutely nothing at all. The way we played was so well below where we've been this season. How do you view a performance like that in isolation, even if, let's say, the last couple of games have perhaps signposted that this kind of a performance was maybe coming somewhere along the way? Mm. I don't think we got what we deserve. I think we got less than what we deserved. I, to be honest, I think it could have been three, four, five, six goals. It was that bad. Um, it's it's a really difficult one to judge because uh, we've got an expression in French which is uh, ni chèvre ni chou, neither a goat nor a cabbage. I know that doesn't translate <laughs> particularly well, but uh, it's it's very hard because, for example, you take the starting lineup. And you think that's not the first team, but it's not quite the second team either. Mm. Um, okay, if we win, we're top of the group. That's great. Uh, we don't have this nightmare scenario of having to go through a playoff. But then if we lose, it's not the end of the world because next game is Zurich at home. Should win that. And you can you can see how it would be very difficult to summon the necessary energy and focus from a group of players who've actually been a little bit on the back, on the back foot mm-hmm. over the past few weeks. And then you add all that together uh, with also some very different uh, individual performances. Um, and yeah, and I think everybody had a bad night. And I would say that the players had, but I think Arteta had a bad night as well. I don't think that is 
team selection made much sense to me. In what way? What what would I would you... have I would have just gone for it with the with the proper you know like first eleven. That is uh, so we, interesting we... because it, like I've seen a lot of people and a lot of people saying you know on my timeline and seeing people discussing like why are we playing any of the first team players? We should just sort of play the under twenty ones or play all the reserves. Oh, really? Like I, well, I don't think that's uh, I don't think that's realistic or possible even because there isn't the depth no. in the squad. You know, but but I understand kind of why the. Um, you know, why he might have held somebody like Saka, like Jesus, like Thomas Partey in reserve because, you know, you start these other guys, you give them an opportunity. If it doesn't work, you can bring these guys on and hopefully change the dynamic of the game. That that didn't necessarily work. But if you sort of go all in from the start, like you're suggesting with the with the strongest possible team. Uh, all in or uh, certainly yeah. not. I mean, uh, if, if I look at the first 11, I would say that there are four players there or there were four players who, who normally wouldn't be in the first team at the moment, that mm-hmm. is, uh, which is rather a lot. And you could, for example, I couldn't understand completely having um, Edin Ketia rather than Gabriel Jesus, who seems a little bit on the back foot at the moment. Yeah. Um, but um, the fact is that also we know that this team doesn't function as well when uh, we don't have the uh, Shaka uh, Thomas Party pairing in midfield. Mm-hmm. And we also know that this PSV team is actually a very decent team, very dangerous, and that they would go for it because they had to. And I don't know, I'm probably old-fashioned about that, um, but I would imagine that if you can put that to bed ASAP, um, you could rest. I mean, you know, what are we going to do against Zurich now? Well, that's the thing. I mean, the 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 thing that Arsenal had to play for last night, of course it was a must-win game for PSV. Yeah. Arsenal knew, back of... Back of back of your mind, you know, subconsciously you know that, well, look, even if it doesn't go our way, we've got a, another home game to to make sure we finish top of the group. Mm-hmm. But, of course, my thinking on this would have been, um, I think, a little bit closer to yours in terms of, I didn't have any big issue with the team he selected last night, but mm. it would have been more, make sure you get the point you need, at least, from this game, because then next week, when you're playing FC Zurich, you can you can rest as many players as you want ahead of a game against Indeed. Chelsea. And then, then part of me wonders, like, do you worry too much about the fatigue, the schedule, things like that? The games come along. You know, I've, I always remember, like, in the not-too-distant past, you know, you'd see someone like Chelsea and they're playing a League Cup game against, I don't know, some championship side. And they play a pretty strong team in that game in midweek and they play a strong team at the weekend and it sort of feeds into what Mikel Arteta was talking about. Like, you know, these guys, you're going to have to play every three days, every four days. You know, we can't give you the excuse of a day off here or, here or there. But I did think that perhaps it would have been better to go stronger last night Um Back yourselves to win against Nottingham Forest and deal with the the little bit of fatigue or travel or whatever it is, and that way then you can get to rest players ahead of the the game against Chelsea next weekend. Yeah, um, I, I think that makes sense. But obviously, uh, all of this is very easy to say with hindsight, of course. And um, which is you know obviously hindsight is always right. Uh, I have to say that I, I looked at the uh, I look at the lineups you know an hour before kickoff and. I was a little bit mm, not too sure about that. I think there's a little bit too much movement and not enough at the same time. And um, especially, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we played with that back four uh, this season. No, I don't think so. I don't. Well, I don't like that. You see, that's one of the things. Especially, we we know and we knew how dangerous they were going forward and and I mean Simon's an absolutely astonishing game really what a player he is yeah looks good it looks very very good and and they genuinely have they genuinely had a very good game going forward anyway but I don't really like the idea of having a, a back four that hasn't been tested really apart from on the training ground obviously but hasn't been tested in competition uh, before that's that's Maybe the one thing that I thought, mm. mm-hmm. I mean, and that's perhaps sending the wrong message as well to the opposition, all these sort of things. But again, hindsight is a wonderful sure. thing. And let's not get, you know, too depressed about that. Sure, it's not the time for basking, which we've done a lot yep. uh, of in the past few weeks and the glory be. Uh, and what you can hope is that um, and people will... F- 
probably the expression wake up call has been used about hundreds of times in in this morning's press and blogs um but it certainly is one mm. and um yeah. and um, so let's take it like that it's not a disaster but honestly it was it was a really 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 poor performance which also shows that we've got a way to go uh, which is a good thing to know um, inverted commas that yes it is a group of players that has been called upon i mean we've basically used the same 11 um you know throughout the season sure um which i'm i'm in a way contradicting myself because in a way i'm, th- I'm saying oh Maybe we should have rotated more, but when we rotate, it doesn't yeah. work. <laughs> so it's it's like you know catch twenty two situation. It just shows that we are not quite as strong in depth as perhaps we would like to be. Not quite. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that's a. It's, it's we're not very far from it, but I would say that it's fairly obvious that we we miss a kind of uh, uh, another partner for Grand Chaka in midfield, for example. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, much as I like Sambi, uh, he's not that kind of player. And, and it shows we have a problem in that area in games that we are not bossing in particular. So, um, and in which we are, don't have this necessary uh, approach, which is, uh, by the way, physically uh, a, a very tiring approach because we, t- we start our games really on the front foot very, very quickly. And we try to, to keep that tempo and going, going throughout. Mm. And that's obviously something that is bound to have an impact on, you know, the physical qualities and the, uh, uh, the resilience of the players over a longer season. But again, let's not let's not let's not read too much into it. I mean, part of it was also. I mean, the lack of defensive organisation was was so obvious. Um, it was clear to me that there was a lack of understanding between the, it's, the it's, players of that back four, and yeah. the number of times they, they could find really easily we were way past us or through us. It was was astonishing, and and with a bit more luck. Uh, or, or a bit less luck for us in terms of offside decisions, it could have been a, a real route. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that back four, I mean, you mentioned it. Um, when you look at it, Tommy Asu, Saliba, Holding and Tierney, I mean, Holding is probably the only one, even though Tommy Asu has been a bit sidelined. He was the first choice last season and, and clearly a very good player. Saliba's yes. in there. Tierney's in there. You know, these are first choice players. I know Tierney and Zinchenko have been rotating a little bit this season, but Zinchenko yeah, hasn't and been Ben fit. White would be on the right, you know, and Tommy yeah. Asu and Tierney would be up for, you know, it would be Zinchenko, otherwise Tierney or Tommy Asu. Rob Holding has, has come in a number of times and actually done a very good job when he's come in, usually. Yeah, not last night, but I mean, the, yeah. the, the point of was going to make about this was Gabriel has had a bit of criticism and he's had a bit of uh, made a couple of errors this season and that happens you know defenders make mistakes simple as that but I'm looking at that back four and I'm wondering who is the communicator in there who is the leader in that back Mm. four because as good a player as William Saliba is he doesn't appear to me anyway and you can correct me if I'm wrong here but he doesn't appear to me to be quite as vocal as you might like now maybe that's just who he is maybe it's the fact that he's only 21 you know all of those kinds of things there is a confidence about the way that he plays which doesn't seem to be um aligned with a a level of communication that you would expect from central defenders i'm not saying he doesn't talk but i'm just wondering in that situation last night when there is a lack of organization at the back who's the guy who's holding that together um and i think that might have been part of our problem Yes, and um, it also shows that when you compare um, the choices, the permutations are possible for clubs which are direct rivals uh, of Arsenal in the league at the moment. You realise that they have actually more options in terms of their, you know, in terms of central defenders. And I would, I would suggest that it is one of the few areas in the that you should not rotate too much. It's it takes a long time. Mm. To, to get a central defensive partnership going. And we have now, we have one now. And it's true from time to time, Gabriel has made a mistake or two here, but uh, let's be frank, we're, I think we're, most of us, we're all extremely happy with, with Saliba and Gabriel as a pair. Yeah. They, they, and, and Gabriel has this presence about him, um, vocally and physically as well. He's very demonstrative on the, on the, on the pitch and he's a kind of in-your-face defender as well, which Rob Holding is not, and Saliba is not either. Mm. And um, 
Yes, and and also you know Tomiyasu when he's when he's played has been playing on the left of defense this season and done a good job actually by the way. So, so he's back on on the right. It's like there's too many things happening. None of those things taken individually are terrible, scandalous, whatever you name it, uh, catastrophic. They're not. It's just that it didn't happen, uh, and and it might be a mixture of again. Those changes in the defensive lineup, it might be a, a certain lack of focus because of the very strange, well, of the peculiar nature of this game and what we needed to take from it as compared to what they needed to take from it. Uh, some element of physical fatigue because it's true that some players have been playing uh, a lot since the beginning of the season. Uh, and you add all, these, all of this together and, you know, it's basically not our night. No. And... Um, I wouldn't say this performance has been coming um, because it was really abject as a performance. Uh, but there have been elements in the past few weeks, I mean, past couple of weeks in particular, which suggest that there's a little, there's a, we need a bit of refreshing somewhere. Um, so maybe it would come precisely because we are about to face the guys, you know, the mm. blue guys. Mm. So that should wake us up. That should wake us up. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it's it's one of those you'd like to say, uh, let's just forget about it and move on to the next one. But mm, it goes a bit, a little bit beyond that. Yeah, it does. I mean, Mikel Arteta spoke afterwards. Um, I think the words or the words he used said, "We need a we need a reset." Um, yeah. You know, we we were nowhere near our level today. Uh, he said we were extremely poor. Um, but talking about a reset, I think, is, is quite interesting. And I, I guess it's sort of inevitable, isn't it, that when you have a schedule like this, um, and I am still a little bit skeptical about the idea of, of fatigue being, uh, uh, you know, completely mm. to blame for this. I think, you know, last night, it's very difficult to explain why a team that has been so effective this season, uh, and the reason I think they've been as effective as, as they have been, uh, is like there's an element of precision to the football that we play. The passes are quick. The control is good. It gives you that half a second to step away from a defender and make the next pass and make the next pass. But there was too much of, uh, too many poor first controls, too many poor first touches last night, uh, bad decision-making, passes being given uh, away under no real pressure, things that we haven't really done all mm. season. And it's difficult to know what exactly is behind that. I know the pitch was a little bit difficult, but it was the same pitch for PSV. Maybe they're used to playing on it. Maybe they practiced on it. I don't know if there was some bobbling and slipping and what have you. It strikes me that you know uh, a manager who... Um, you know, spent a lot of time with Alex Ferguson, might well have prepared his pitch for his players and not for the Arsenal players. I mean, I you know, I'm not ruling that out. I don't think that's beyond the realms of possibility, no. you know, but I don't think we can use that as, as an excuse necessarily. But, but a team that has, throughout this season, played extremely well, you know, for about 80%, 85% of the season, we've played really, really well. Isn't it sort of inevitable that at some point, when you have given a lot to beat Tottenham, when you've given a lot to beat Liverpool, when you've been away in Norway, away to Leeds, away to Southampton, which is a tricky ground for us, as we know, mm. and then you're away to PSV on a night where they're up for a lot of energy at home, they know they have to get something from the game to finish top of the group. So, you know, all of those things come together, bit of a perfect storm, perhaps. But it is inevitable that that, a slip in standards, even if it's only 5%, can look a lot worse, you yes. know, when it comes to, because that's all it is. I don't think it's like uh, we were uh, as poor as as I've seen us last uh, this season so far, but it doesn't have to be much to make you look really bad. And I think no. just sort of trying to correct that um, is what lies next for Mikel Arteta. And, and I think also there's, there's another element to take into uh, consideration here is that I, I genuinely think that our perception of what is to be expected in a football game is totally warped these days. Um, it, there's something totally wrong in the way we look at things. The idea of losing 2-0 away to PSV Eindhoven, I mean, there's nothing so crazy about that. Uh, we've become so used to see the big clubs literally hammer everything that is put in mm. their path 
that we just expect everything in football to respect the kind of logic of the stronger, you know, the fitter, uh, being always the uh, the winner. And to to a crazy extent, I mean, PSV chased Ajax all the way to the title in, in, in Holland last year. They're a good team. Mm. And, and the fact that, you know, and Ajax is a very good team, and <laughs> including on the European stage, you know, whatever is happening this season, but they're a very good team. So it's, like, it's not as if, oh, you're bound to beat those guys. No, you're not. And I, I, I genuinely think there is an element of that. It's like, for example, our, our, our starting the season in the league is totally abnormal. I'm sorry, it is totally abnormal. It makes no sense. <laughs> you know, it, it, yes, because if you look at after uh, 10 games or 9 games, we were on course, on the, on the, the tempo was over 100 points over the season. That's not normal. But we've become used to that because of the Manchester Cities and the Liverpools and the Bayerns and the PSGs of this world. And we somehow, I think, we project on our own clubs, on our own club, which is nowhere near those guys in terms of financial power. Well, it's, not, it's not near those guys. Mm. Uh, we project the kind of logic that we've developed for super, the super elite teams and thinking it's normal that these teams should win everything. It's not. Football is totally abnormal in the 21st century. What Manchester City is doing is abnormal. What, what Liverpool has been doing is abnormal. Bayern, you carry on like that. Totally abnormal. And we are a normal club. We are not part of that super elite. And therefore, we, we will have nights like this when it shows that we are not the all-conquering, uh, all-singing, all-dancing <laughs> kind of troop which is assembled for, you know, hundreds of millions by Manchester City who can afford to have, you know, Emery Laporte or Ruben Diaz on the bench, you know, this, which is ridiculous. We, don't, we can't afford that. I mean, we have spent so, a lot of money, though, to be fair. No, we, we, have, we have spent a lot of money, and we've spent it actually wisely. Mm. But we haven't spent it over a period of 14 years, like that's been the case for those guys, or, or in the case of Chelsea for even longer than that. Yeah. No, we have spent money, and we've actually addressed some of the issues that we had in our squad, because we'd spent unwisely in the past as well. Now, it, it, it's, it's true, that, but we've spent within our means, by the way, and for anybody who hasn't seen... Uh, Swiss Rambles, wonderful thread. When I say wonderful, it's wonderfully uh, rational and explained and clear about the finances of Arsenal and how it is possible for us to spend that much whilst actually being economically viable, not just for FFP purposes, but also for the profitability of, pro profitability of the club. Have a look at it. It's fantastic. Um, but what I mean by that is that even if we've spent a lot of money on a number of players, we are not in that category. I mean, maybe I'm explaining myself badly, but I think... Uh, we have a problem of perception as to what should be expected. It's not just having expectations which are excessive. It's a fact the expectations are unreal. We are not, the reality that we live in, in terms of this super elite, this new hierarchy in European club football, is so abnormal when you look at it, you know, with a longer lens. That our own perception is is skewed because of it. So do you? And, I, and I'm not I'm not saying that it excuses or is finding reason for what happened against PSV. What I'm saying is that what happens against what happened against PSV is something that will happen to any club which is not part of the super elite. It will happen. It's it's just uh, and and I we are so um, now formatted to believe that there is a kind of natural order in football that. We read too much sometimes. It was just in what is just a bad result. I'm more, it's not a result that, that I find worrying, Andrew. I'm more worried about the fact that it comes following a number of performances which were really well below par. That's more of a worry to me than sure. the fact of losing at the PSV. So, I mean, do you, uh, I mean, are you basically saying that because of what the likes of Manchester City have done and, and what Liverpool have done in a different way. I think it's yes. important to point out that Liverpool Absolutely. have done it in, in a different way. I mean, still in a way that is out of the reach of 90% of football clubs in all the world, but they've done it a different way to, to Manchester Absolutely. City. But but it's created a... I don't want to say that standards have been raised or levels have been raised because I think there's an artificiality, obviously, about it because of the way Man City have spent money, right? Yep. Um, but 
we know or we understand now as football fans that you almost need perfection to achieve success. So anything that isn't perfect feels much more uh, disheartening or discouraging or damaging than it actually is. Yes, correct. That absolutely. I, I, I entirely agree. Which doesn't mean, again, that there is not an element of the performance last night which is not worrying but or preoccupying, um, but let's not blow it out of all proportion. Again, I think it's, I, it's more the fact that it, this, is, this comes after a, a few performances where which were sloppy and and again you're absolutely right you know the the number of unforced errors and the passing is not as crisp and as fast um the speed at which the ball gets to feet or in the path of the run mm. has, has decreased which is one of the first things that i notice when i watch a football game i'm looking how fast are they are they shooting at you know their, their passes yes, or are they just Passing the ball around. Yeah, we've, and we've talked about this a lot. Down we've the talked years. about, and I, I think it's an absolutely crucial element. And and we have slowed down in that particular um, area. And obviously, it's very, as you said, the margins are infinitesimal. Um, and if you're, you know, even like two percent down on your normal rhythm, you get punished for it. But, and we, but again, we could have been punished far worse in far worse fashion than 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 we did. Yeah. We were really, really, really bad. Yeah. So I mean, do you think? <laughs> I mean, something like this, like you mentioned, uh, Mikel. I said Mikel Arteta said it's a reset point, and you mentioned I think wake up call and things like that, where yeah. you know we're not quite as deep as we would like to be. So do you think mm-hmm. there's something quite useful about? this Europa League campaign demonstrating quite clearly that in a couple of positions, let's say, there is still some room for improvement. And, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously, uh, as we saw towards the end of the window, there were some there were some issues with the squad anyway that the manager would have liked to have had addressed when he talked about more firepower. So we knew we were chasing a winger, you know, Rafinha, Pedro Neto, names like that being even Cody Gakpo was somebody who was who was mentioned. Yep. And then, you know, the injury to Partey and El Neni meant we were looking for a midfielder. And I think this perhaps illustrates the need for reinforcements in January and of course this season is quite unique in the sense that in a couple of weeks we're going to be taking a break uh, for the World Cup and we'll talk about that in in a moment but it is a unique situation in that normally in December the schedule is ridiculous it's so hectic you're just sort of right let's go game to game to game to game then you get the festive period and it's like uh, how are we going to get through this and then January happens and everybody is sort of reacting to an extent in January and things go Mm. towards the end of the window. Whereas now we've got football managers, we've got football executives, we've got scouts, we've got recruitment people, we've got all of these um, people who, you know, are going to be not necessarily at a loose end, but certainly with a lot more time to stop and think about where their squad is and who they've got available and and what kind of a, a second half of the season they're expecting. So, yeah. This January, to me, regardless of what happens between now and the break for the World Cup, and I hope we can obviously keep going and beat Forrest on Sunday and get a good result against Chelsea and, you know, go into this World Cup break in good shape, you know, top of or near the top of the table, which is, you know, a good place to be based on, on expectation levels before the start of the season. But January becomes super, super important as to how we can maintain this, because already you might say we're showing a few signs of, of not being able to quite maintain the levels, um, whether it's physical, technical, whatever it might be for all the various reasons. Um, you can see that it's not quite there at the moment. Yeah, I quite agree. And, um, and the thing is, as well, I mean, I think all, all that you have said is, is 100% correct. And I will just add one thing to make it 120% correct, okay. to quote Gianni Infantino, um, <laughs> is we have absolutely no idea. And I mean, nobody has any idea where anybody is going to be in around the uh, 20th of December. Absolutely nobody knows. Mm. We, we, have, we haven't got a clue. Because, I mean, we're going to have a number of players going to, uh, obviously, to the World Cup ourselves. 
uh, in decent teams who could actually be there for, if not a duration, but uh, you know they'll they'll be there for for a while. Uh, nobody has any idea which physical state the players will come back in, especially playing in this very strange competition. Um, and 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 it's what is true of us and for us is true of all our rivals, certainly in England. Mm. Nobody knows. And and if you talk to people who are, um, be it in the physio department or people who are in the scouting department, they will all tell you that they haven't got a clue how they're going to approach the coming window because a lot will depend on the aftershock of this crazy World Cup. Mm. And because the consequences, well, we, we don't know what the consequences are because the amount of football we will have played by the time we actually get there is unprecedented in um, English football history. And I really mean it. It is unprecedented. We will never have played as many games before that the, the 15th of November or 12th of November, yeah. whenever it is that uh, the players are joining their, their teams, than we have had this season because we started earlier than we've ever started. We've had loads of midweek games, which we don't have necessarily, we don't have usually because we have to because of this crazy timing. And on top of that, the European competitions as well. So, um, yeah, it's um, as uh, I'm, I'm like you, I think this January window is going to be absolutely crucial because in a way we're going to have two seasons in one and we genuinely are going to have two seasons in one. I mean, the, the other side of this as well is that professional footballers don't take a six-week break in the middle of the season, ever. No. No. And, and that's, you know, the players who are going to the World Cup, we obviously know the demands that are going to be placed on them, but we don't quite know how, like, most of the players in the world are not going to go to the World Cup. Most of the players in the Premier League are not going to go to the World Cup. Mm-hmm. But then they have a a period in which, obviously, they can train, but there's, you know, a big difference, as we know, between training and competitive football. And how they're going to react, despite, I'm sure, the best efforts of every club. You know, Arsenal, we know, are going to go to Dubai. They're going to play against Lyon. They're going to play against AC Milan. They're going to play against, you know, play these friendlies. And, and that's obviously important to, to keep these guys fit and sort of at a, at a sort of match fitness level that allows you to get going again. But we don't know how players are going to react to that, whether we're going to see more injuries, whether we're going to see... We will. Some, yeah, I mean, we might, for sure. And and we might see some players really benefit from it, but we might also see some players who, who because they've had to sort of, in, in essence, down tools in the middle of a season, uh, find it very difficult to get going again or suffer, like you're saying, so, some injuries because of that. Yeah, but it's already started as far as the um, muscular injuries are, are concerned. I mean, it's, it's, it's complete... It's just, it's a slaughterhouse in European football. It's completely crazy. I mean, I, I, I'm thinking in particular what's happening to the French team. It's absolutely crazy the number of players who are out with muscular injuries. And, and it seems like every week that goes by, another one mm. gets injured, you know. Um, and so this will only add to it. And, and to be honest, yes, physios are really tearing their hair out, what's left of it, because there is no way you can plan for that because it's never happened before. And let's hope it never happens again. Uh, it's unmanageable. It's unmanageable. And, um, but the thing is that, once again, the clubs which have got the um, financial means um, that others perhaps don't have uh, will, again, will be uh, disproportionately um, advantaged by this very weird, um, by, by the transfer market yet again, and perhaps this time more than ever. Mm. They'll be able to just to jump in and say, okay, right, we've got so many crocs, we need so many, we've got the money, let's spend it. Stuff it. I mean, oh yeah. I mean that that brings us to to the World Cup, and I know you have some strong thoughts on this. Um, you know, as a, as an event, and uh, I have shared them on a few occasions. You, you have, <laughs> you have. It's fair to say. It's fair um, to say yes. I mean, you know, it's 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 such a weird one, you know, because I think there are so many uh, aspects to this tournament that that don't don't stand up to any kind of scrutiny, you know, in terms of decision making, in terms of timing, all all of those things. Mm. Um, but it's it's. I suppose the thing is, you know, I'm I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking, you know, this is the World Cup. I love the World Cup. I love the the football. I love the the pomp and circumstance of it all. And I, I guess that's part of 
um, why this is sort of problematic for a lot of people in that, like, you can you can let yourself uh, just say, well, fuck it, I'll watch the football. It's just a football tournament. I can turn a blind eye to, to everything else. Mm. But that's part of what, you know, they want you to do, right? Um, yep. I, I I noted the the Australian players. The Australian Football Federation released a, a statement this week um, about you know the the entire situation, you know the World Cup as a whole that is happening as a tournament, but but what it has uh, meant to many people um, who have gone to Qatar to to work, uh, who've lost their lives, all the information. Uh, you know, it's it's a little bit um, difficult to get exact numbers on on certain things. But what did you make of that statement from the Australian Football Federation? And are you expecting others to follow suit? Uh, or are they just going to do something like wear an armband? I think that what the Socceroos did is admirable uh, because... It was very difficult for them to come forward with such a statement. Um, they've struck exactly the right tone. The, I mean, if you haven't seen, you know, people who haven't seen this short video that has been posted on, you know, social networks by actually the their, their PFA basically, but it's a message from the Socceroos. Um, I think they they strike a perfect balance between respect for the people who are. Uh, hosting the World Cup and uh, nuance in their approach, but at the same time, they're very direct in what they say, talk, say about the right to unionize, um, the right to live and survive, and also the situation uh, of uh, LGBTQI plus people in, in Qatar. And the way they've put that message together, I think is totally admirable. Will many others follow suit? I don't think so. I think most of the world doesn't give a fuck about it. Let's be absolutely uh, honest about it. The reaction that there's going to be about, that there has been about the Qatar uh, World Cup, and I say that as a veteran, I published my first piece on, on the plight of migrant workers in Qatar back in 2013. And I don't think many people were doing that at the time. Uh, so it's something that I've been pursuing ever since then. And to be honest with you, Andrew, I'm getting a bit sick of it right now. I'm which is why I have very, very little, I mean, actually no enthusiasm whatsoever for the tournament. Mm. Even though I don't think we should boycott it in terms of watching it, but we'll come to that in a second. Um, but the uh, most of the world doesn't care. Um, the, the criticism that is going Qatar's way and, and FIFA's way, but not enough towards FIFA. Yeah, there should be far say, more yeah. criticism towards FIFA. FIFA is responsible for this mess. Hundred um, percent. It has come from a handful of countries in Europe, and that's it. In Asia, nothing. In Africa, absolutely zilch. Uh, in South America, barely mentioned. North America, that might surprise you because you would have thought, come on, the USA, Canada. Uh, no, it's hardly been mentioned. So it is really something that is being put forward by people. Uh, particularly in, in, in Scandinavia, uh, where you have seen the attitude of the Danish Football uh, Federation, for example, and Danish players, mm. uh, the Norwegians, who actually held uh, a vote uh, in June uh, to, you know, to see if they would participate in case they qualified. And, and you know, the work that our friends, my friends at Yosima have been doing when We'll give a plug to them in a second. Yes. Um, uh, about it and, and, and a few independent voices and certainly in, in the UK, in Germany as well, from some of the fans. I'm thinking of the Bayern fans in particular. It's really, uh, th this criticism uh, has been extremely localized. Um, and so that's a very long answer to a very short question, which is that would you expect many to follow suit? No, but not at all. I expect the uh, the English FA to come up with another mealy-mouthed uh, statement which says one something without saying anything and actually says nothing in the end. Mm. They're specialists in this kind of... Uh, if you open the tap of the FA uh, in their hand basin... It always uh, gives tepid water. Uh, that's 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 the way it goes with them. 
uh, we might see something, we'll see something, I think, from, from Denmark, obviously, as we've already had. And I would imagine the Germans as well. Uh, and that's about it, really. And it, no, it, it is actually, uh, it, it is extraordinary. And it, that, in fact, there, there should be far more criticism in terms of how widespread it should be. And also what I find shocking is that there is far too little, almost no criticism of FIFA itself. Well, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, this is one of those situations where I think if you asked football fans in general for their opinion of FIFA, do they think there's um, questionable decision-making? Is there potential corruption, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera? I think the vast majority of football fans would yes. say, you know what, I think you could be onto something here, you know, based on, like, <laughs> yes. all the fucking evidence we've had down the years with uh, previous presidents and, you know, things that you've spoken about, things that lots of people have written about. But is it is it seen as like an organization that is so big, it can just kind of do what it wants, despite the fact that it can hire a nice marketing firm and what have you to put a, a lovely facade on all the decisions that it makes. And Gianni Infantino can can go around the world doing his cosplay in various costumes and fucking kicking a ball here, there and everywhere as if he's bringing, you know, the beauty and the love of football to, you know, to everyone far and wide. When we know uh, that that, that noise, which you can hear in the background <laughs> is myself getting hold of a bucket. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, well, you know what I mean? But but. Uh, does it in some ways what i'm asking is it like does it feel pointless to try and take on fifa because like no, what no, else no, is no. there i'm not saying that shouldn't happen but i can understand why you know everyone just go oh fifa yeah well we know what they're about fuck it you know what can we do about that there's a sort of resignation because the, because of the the sort of stranglehold that it has over the yeah. game Yes, no, I, I can understand that up to a point, but up to a point only. Uh, the fact is, it can seem at the moment that uh, it is an organization that is beyond repair. Uh, that's what I believe. I believe that it should be uh, disbanded. And I do hope uh, that uh, government agencies and law enforcement agencies will find enough on those bastards to uh, actually nuke um, mm. FIFA headquarters. Uh, in a metaphorical sense, yes, obviously, of course. <laughs> yeah, to you know, yes. understand what I mean here. Uh, no. But it is not; uh, it's, it's not fit for purpose. Uh, it, it is run; it is still run like a mafia. It is also run like a dictatorship. Um, Infantino is going to be re-elected in March 2023 with no position by acclamation. Um, FIFA is basically both. Um, I mean, FIFA is its own uh, police and judge and jury. Uh, which is not exactly, which is, you know, a bit like Putin's Russia, basically. So they can get away with anything. And um, it, it's, no, it's this organization is just not fit for purpose. And one huge problem, which of course, um, you know, when we, when we talk about Qatar 2022, this is also what we should be talking about. Why the hell are we organizing a tournament in a country where it shouldn't take place? And, and there are no reasons why it should take place there. None. Zero. Um, bring the cup to the Arab world. What a bloody joke. What a bloody joke. If you want to do that, send it to Morocco, send it to Egypt, have a regional World Cup, perhaps. Why not? But then, and, and, and FIFA now has a, a charter of human rights. Well, okay. I mean, I think every single paragraph in that charter has been violated and is violated on a daily basis um, in that regime, which is a dictatorship. Right. That's mm. a fact. Uh, why is it taking place in the winter? Because it can't take place in the summer. Oh, shit, we voted for a World Cup in the summer. Why did we change our mind? Well, I don't know why exactly. And you know what? As well, Qatar is organizing the Asian Cup next year in June and July. Can you imagine that? So, I mean, you, you look around and it's just nonsensical. And why is it nonsensical? It's because of FIFA. It's because of the vote that was taken on 2nd of December 2010. It's because of the lack of moving four years later uh, the dates of the World Cup just to suit to make sure the tournament could happen. It's because of Infantino carrying on with the same mafia-like style system. We've changed the name. We haven't changed the way it works. It's exactly the same thing. It's an organization that only responds to itself, that is not accountable to anybody but itself, that has no transparency. It basically is everything 
that Jenny Infantino says it isn't. Mm. And they are responsible for that. They should be getting the flack. The Qataris, think of their, their regime, whatever you think. You, you probably can guess what I think of it, and probably an opinion that you will share. But what did they do? They played the game. They played the game whose rules were laid down by FIFA, who, who chose Russia and Qatar. Mm. And, uh, and, and, and now... And FIFA, which is justifying, by the way, I mean, it's, it's just, I mean, I, I see words are f- starting to fail me because unfortunately every single word I can think of is is a word that even on Arscast on, on would, would get beeped out. No, I wouldn't beep, but I know, I know, I know where you're coming from and I understand the, you know, the, the frustration of... You know, yeah. this, this it's just like it goes it's back to what I said. It's the as well of it. It's, it's a, completely crazy. Yeah, but you it's know, a sense our, of helplessness, no? It's burning, and here we are, organizing tournaments which is bigger than ever and which would become even bigger where this is insane it's supposed to be the greenest world cup ever obviously of course it is not it's it's just ridiculous it's it's in fact it's going to be the most carbon hungry um or carbon producing rather a world cup that's ever been and to the extent that because they hadn't thought of oh shit we've got people who are coming to our World Cup, we better find a place where they can sleep after the games. Uh, but since they don't have the infrastructure, and you know, uh, what have they done? They've uh, started a system of air shuttles, which are going to take the fans to the games and from the games and take them to Oman and Kuwait and Saudi and wherever, uh, where there are actually places where they can stay. So mm. every day there's going to be another 168 flights there and back added to um, the schedule at Doha Airport, Doha Airport, which is already tiny, uh, so that fans can go in and go out. I mean, uh, how insane is that? I mean, what the hell is going on here? We so, should be looking at making competitions smaller. But obviously, FIFA is is, is this kind of... Um, um, what's the... Uh, the, the, the I mean, I'm looking for the, this word. The, I'm thinking, you know, of... Uh, this gigantic figure of a horned figure in which victims are are thrown mm. you know in this of the mouth is just a, a notion of fire and you and you throw things moloch that's what i'm thinking yeah. about that's what i'm thinking about and and it has it needs more it needs to consume more it needs to have more victims because gigantism is the reason why it exists it's become it's it's a cancer that has basically run out of i mean yeah it's it's just running amok yeah. the problem is that this cancer is not killing itself it's killing us and yeah. it's killing our football if you, so what you do yeah. you whack the thing and the i'm afraid that this this is going to be the only thing is FIFA has got to be exploded one way or another. I am not as um, pessimistic. I mean, I, I sound very pessimistic, but I do think it can happen. I do think there are other stakeholders who could have a say in that, who are getting fed up with it. That, that That's the players, for example. That's the smaller clubs, some federations. And, and of course, there's always the hope that, you know, law enforcement agencies will also catch up with some of the people they haven't caught up with yet. Um, fingers crossed in, yep. in that regard. Very quickly, tell me about um, the Yosimar uh, International Edition, which is available now. It's uh, a magazine, sort of a World Cup issue, but instead of profiling the teams, they've profiled migrant workers uh, who yep. have been in Qatar and some of whom um, you know, have had difficult times there. So can you just give us a, a quick outline of that? Yeah, um, I, I hate to say to use the word beautiful when I, you know, speak about something which is devoted to uh, what is a hellscape. But it is an absolutely astonishing feat of um, journalism. And also, uh, it's a beautiful thing to, to look at and to read. And there's also a photo report and so forth. But basically, uh, my friends at Yosima have been going um, in Qatar for, I mean, a number of times um, over the past couple of years in particular obviously in quite uh, dicey conditions uh, for themselves they went as tourists and then they did what they could um, to see what it was really like on the ground for migrant workers and 
instead of teams of 32 teams they've talked to they've chosen 32 accounts uh, which are all told in the first person singular um, because that's what they wanted to do is the voices being the voices unfiltered voices of the people who are there are paid a pittance mm. have to work in absolutely awful conditions are housed 12 to a room without sanitation proper sanitation without proper food um, I've had to pay agents fortunes just for the privilege of being exploited like slaves uh, in that country. And so it's 32 uh, accounts, uh, some of them quite harrowing, some of them more nuanced, but which add up to, I think, to one of the most powerful exposés on, on human exploitation that I've ever come across by one of our contemporary societies. And... Uh, Yosima has made the choice not to cover the World Cup at all apart from that angle. It's a very brave, very brave, very courageous, courageous choice. And I, uh, it's not cheap. I, I'm saying that. Yeah. You know, it's not cheap to, to buy it. But uh, the good news, inverted commas, for people who perhaps don't have quite the money to, to pay for this, um, is that there is an online edition available as from today. Oh, great. Uh, which is great, which people can, and, you know, please, please do, you know, I'm, I'm on my knees here because FIFA doesn't need money, but Yosima does. And without Yosima, FIFA can, can carry on doing its dirty work. And we, because I'm, I'm a member of that team, and we're trying to make our best to make their life as difficult as possible. All right. At well, least to, to remind people of what football is about in, in 2022. So sure. thank you very much for letting me having this uh putting across the case for, for Yosimar and, and the work that we are doing and that they particularly they've done for, for the World Cup. For sure. We will, uh, I'll put links in the show notes and on the website. People can have a look. They can kind. get the uh, the print edition um, and also the, the digital edition, which is uh, available from today. Um, finally, can we talk about table football? <laughs> I was wondering if you would uh, reach the subject. <laughs> so, we can. Yeah. Uh, what is called baby foot. In French, how do you baby, say it again? Baby foot, baby, as in foot. baby football. Okay, baby foot. Yeah. Well, again. you were playing midweek against a, a a fairly famous name. People might have heard of this yeah. this guy, Arsene. Who Arsene Wenger? I think is his name was. Yes. How, how did it go for you, Philippe? Um, I was trounced. <laughs> I opened the scoring with quite a nice move on on from my on the right wing in particular, and Arsene, uh, being the winner that he is, uh, absolutely trounced me afterwards. But I, I do think he played fast and loose with some of the rules and regulations. Was Is he a spinner? Is he just a multi-spinner? Yes, yes. Oh, and I, I told him, pas de roulette, no spinning, please. <laughs> I also reminded him that goals scored from midfield normally shouldn't count. It should be counted. But, of course, where did he score his, games, his goals for? From midfield. The granite jack of table football, eh? Absolutely. And uh, <laughs> so he beat me 5-1. He beat me 5-1. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, it was really quite frustrating. But it was so great fun and totally surreal because I, <laughs> I, I certainly wasn't expecting on a, on a Tuesday evening uh, in London to, to play table football with Arsene Wenger. Uh, with Patrick Vieira looking over his shoulder to, and having a good laugh at uh, at us as well. <laughs> so he had a, he had a, he had an assistant as well. Not only was he playing, he had an assistant yeah, manager absolutely. and Patrick Vieira. Oh, by the way, I've got a little um, uh, a little insight into um, thanks to this t- table football okay. thingy, because I mean it was basically a small do at the French at the French ambassador's residence and Ooh, la, la. which was yeah yeah Ben Paddy was the guest of honor and Arsene was around David Dean was around uh, a few Crystal Palace players were, were there too and, and some youngsters would come from the Parisian Bonlieu as well it was actually really nice really sweet quite low key but uh, among the people who was there was Nicolas Jobert you know the, uh, yes, the our set piece. piece specialist yeah and I put him the question that I've always wanted I said why is Gabby Martinelli, perhaps the best header of the ball, taking corner kicks for us? And? And he said, that's a very good question. 
Did he give you and an he answer? Said, yes. Okay. Yes. He said they've done. He he's a, he comes from he's an analyst to start with. He started his career with Montpellier as an analyst. Mm. And he said it's true that in terms of his timing, he said that uh, Gabi is is perhaps the best header of the ball at the club. He said his sense of timing is just phenomenal from an attacking perspective. From an attacking perspective, but he also says the quality of his delivery is also truly exceptional. So then it comes to the situation that, that you are in. Uh, there are times when he might not take the corner kicks. It will depend on the personnel which is on, on the pitch, obviously. But if you've got the first 11, so to speak, because we have got so many players who are actually good in the air and can score from corner kicks, on corner kicks, mm. the quality, apparently, they've done the calculations and all the rest of it. He's the best suited to create scoring opportunities uh, in the box on corner kicks, direct uh, scoring opportunities, given the rest of the squad. So it's basically given, you know, mm. give a little, but you gain a lot. And, uh, but yeah, but basically said, yes, that's a good question. That's a question that they've asked themselves, obviously, yeah, obviously. Yeah. And and the way they, they went about it, it's like, no, you've got to think, what do you gain? What do you lose? What you gain is actually more than what you lose. So therefore it's worth doing it. And it's true, Gabby's delivery, the quality of his delivery is, is absolutely magnificent, it has to be said. So there you go. That was worth being beaten 5-1 by Arsene Wenger at table. Absolutely. All right, my friend. Well, listen, thank you as ever for your time. Much appreciated. Like I my said, we'll give the Osimar a, a good plug and people can, can have a read of that. Um, we'll chat to you soon. Thanks, Philippe. All right. Bye-bye. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Thank you very much indeed to Philippe. You can find him on Twitter. He is at Philippe Auclair, at Philippe Auclair. And you'll find links in the show notes today or on the website, the post that has this particular podcast on arsblog.com. You'll find links through to Yasimar Football, the publication that we mentioned, and as a sort of general resource website to look at, which looks at many of the things that are not great in football that go on all the time and get swept under the carpet. The Yasimar Football website is well worth your time. So thank you again to Philippe. Right, I'm going to leave it there for today because we need to get this podcast out for you guys to listen to. We will be looking ahead to the Nottingham Forest game on Patreon. We'll have our usual Premier League preview podcast over on Patreon. That will be tomorrow, Saturday. We'll have that for you uh, probably around midday there or thereabouts. So we'll have that for you on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash arseblog. The Arsecast Extra this week is going to be a bit later than usual. It will be recording Monday evening, not Monday morning. Uh, for various reasons, we can't do it until then, but we will have that for you on Monday evening. Let's hope it's a good evening after a, a good performance and a good result again Forest, which would of course keep us top of the Premier League table, still a very nice place to be. So until then, thank you as always for listening. Have a good one, and we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye bye.
Welcome back to Sky Sports News. And we begin this hour with some incredible transfer news for you. It is official. The world transfer record has been broken. Not just broken, obliterated, pulverized, smashed into smithereens. Egon Musk has bought Twitter for $44 billion. <laughs> 40. Think of all the stuff you could do with $44 billion. And he bought Twitter. <laughs> what the fuck is he thinking? <laughs> Who is his financial advisor? Jamie O'Hara? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 